The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Crime Sphere. I'm Nina Instead. And I am Mike Morford. Mike, you and I spend a lot of time talking about crime and criminals. We wanted to talk about true crime media. There's a lot of it out there. Some of it's good. Some of it, eh, not so good. Books, TV shows, documentaries, movies. In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking about the media that you are watching, reading, and listening to. We will also talk with the creators of this media, giving you the scoop on upcoming projects, behind-the-scenes info, and our own thoughts on what's out there, what's good, and what's bad. The Staircase, the true crime documentary about the 2001 murder of Kathleen Peterson in North Carolina. The Last Defense, it's a seven-episode series that, quote, explores and exposes flaws in the American justice system. A Wedding and a Murder is a new show on Oxygen. Pretty troubling news regarding former NFL tight end Kellen Winslow Jr. Some news about Stephen Avery's nephew, Brendan Dassey. Joseph Newton Chandler. The Christy Myrak case. I would definitely recommend it. He did not get a fair trial. It's almost as if uh, Brendan Dassey never had a chance. I didn't care for the production values. I didn't care for the way it was laid out. In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking about what's new in true crime media, from TV and movies to podcasts, books, and streaming. We will also cover what's making news in true crime circles and feature interviews with some of your favorite podcasters, authors, and personalities. Be sure to follow Crime Sphere, and we'll be back. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. We've all seen the scenario in a movie or on television. Usually it's a horror movie or a thriller. A couple is sleeping comfortably in bed when they hear a noise downstairs. The husband tells his wife that he's going downstairs to investigate and to confront the source of the noise. But for Francis J. Gallo Jr., a Shelton, Connecticut husband and father of two, he found himself in this position in real life. In the early morning hours of December 22, 1992, at around 4.30 a.m., Fran, as he was known to his family and friends, awoke to a disturbance downstairs in his home at 7.30 Howe Avenue. Wanting to protect his wife and children, Fran bravely went downstairs and was shot by an intruder or intruders. The shots jolted his family and they sprang from their beds, alarmed by the sounds. Fran's wife, Linda, along with the couple's two children, ran downstairs and found Fran unconscious on the floor in the kitchen. 
The back door was wide open, and the house was quiet. At first, the family couldn't tell what was wrong with Fran, and they didn't see any blood. But after hearing the sounds of gunshots, they concluded he had been shot. Linda told her daughter, Lindsay, and son, Fran, to race over to a neighbor's house for help. As they ran out of the home, she dialed 911, but discovered that the phone wasn't working. While Linda waited for help to arrive, Fran's wounds began to bleed. The neighbors called 911, and within minutes, police and paramedics were at the scene. Fran Gallo was rushed to the Yale New Haven Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. It was determined that he had been shot twice in the neck. The gunshots Fran had suffered were not contact wounds, which indicated that he was not shot at point-blank range. The Gallo family had just experienced a horrifying and seemingly random situation that any one of us could find ourselves in. As police investigated the scene, they found that the phone lines and cable wires to the Gallo home had been cut. Some items were missing from the home. Outside, there was evidence that the Gallo's car had been broken into, something that had also happened previously. It wasn't long before the police surmised that Fran Gallo had interrupted one or more intruders during a burglary and had been shot as they escaped. The idea of a cat burglar is a frightening scenario. Most burglars want to avoid the homeowners at all costs and usually strike when they know a house is empty. Cat burglars enter homes to burglarize them while people are in the home and usually while they're asleep. The fact that cat burglars know people are home but still break in anyway gives them a rush and that also makes them unpredictable and dangerous. This is supported by the fact that Fran Gallo's killer had cut the phone lines before entering the home. Due to the seeming randomness of the crime and a lack of real clues or evidence, the murder of Fran Gallo seemed destined to go cold. After his murder, his family could never bring themselves to live in the home on Howe Avenue again. After Fran Gallo was murdered, police got a tip that led them to suspect that a local teenage boy might have been the shooter. Later on the morning of the shooting, the teenager was reported as a runaway. According to police, the suspect who is now in his 40s was located. He had moved to Alabama and has never returned to Connecticut. Police have questioned him, and he's still a person of interest in the case, but they just don't have enough to arrest him for Fran Gallo's murder. Acting on a tip, police have also searched the Housatonic River looking for the gun that was used in the murder. They actually did find a gun in the search, but it wasn't the one used to shoot Fran Gallo. Over the years since Fran Gallo was murdered, usually around Christmas time, local newspapers in the Shelton, Connecticut area run articles about the unsolved murder, encouraging people with information to come forward and publicizing a $70,000 reward in the case. But so far, their efforts have not resulted in an arrest. The Shelton police have also continued to investigate the case, but they don't have too much to work with. In 2012, Connecticut state officials made decks of cards with the victims of unsolved murders pictured on the cards, along with information about the murders. The decks were distributed to prisons, and officials hoped that prisoners playing with the cards might have or know information about some of the cases featured on the cards. They thought that some prisoners might come forward with information to collect a reward or make a deal to reduce their prison sentence. Fran Gallo's case was included on the Ten of Spades, along with mention of the $70,000 reward being offered in his case, but unfortunately it didn't lead to any breakthroughs in the case. For the past 25 years, the Gallo family has struggled to deal with Fran's murder and the aftermath. They don't know why anyone would want to kill Fran. By all accounts, he was a well-liked family man without any known enemies. He had a good job at a hospital and was a volunteer fireman at the Hotchkiss Hose Fire Company No. 1 in Derby, Connecticut. Fran, who had a reputation for having a great sense of humor, also coached youth soccer. His family needs and deserves answers in a case that they feel is beyond cold. 
Frangela's daughter, Lindsay, who was just 11 at the time of her father's murder, joined me to discuss her father's case and the impact his murder has had on the Gallo family over the past 25 years. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show today, Lindsay, to discuss the murder in your family, and that's the murder of your father, Francis Gallo. Well, thanks for having me. So the first thing I need to ask is, how old were you when your father was murdered? I had just turned 11. You know, at that age, that's where you're really starting to get some good memory, because I, I know when I hit that age, I could remember a lot of stuff about my family and my youth and stuff. So did you have a good amount of memories of your father by that time? Yeah, I definitely had extensive and robust memories of him. Well, that's good then, because I've talked to some people who were young and the children have no memory of them. And it's just, that's a really sad thing, but at least you have memories. Um, if you can, just give us an idea of who your dad was. He was the most funniest man I've ever met. And he was very generous and he was involved in so many community activities. He was a fireman. He played softball for the Firemen's League. He coached soccer. He was in the drum corps. You know, he was in the bowling league every Tuesday night. He was just, he was everybody's friend and he was so welcoming and he was warm and he, he, he was like, looking back now, like, I see my friends with their dads, and I'm like, that's how my dad would have been. Like, the funny dad who, you know, knows that you're going to make mistakes as a teenager, but he's not going to hold them against you. And he's just going to be the most, like, understanding and caring and loving dad. And did you have a big family at the time? Um, so it's just, you know, my dad, my brother my mom and me, but he had two sisters and my aunt has two kids. And so there was definitely, you know, my grandparents. So there was definitely like a lot of people at holidays and birthday parties and stuff like that. So it was a, a big family atmosphere and everything was good. Yeah. Typical like Italian family. <laughs> and then all of a sudden this happens. Take us back to that night when it happened. Do you have memories specifically of that night and what happened? Yeah, so he was killed on a Tuesday morning, but that Monday night, my mom was a Tupperware lady, so they had their Christmas party, because this happened in December, and that particular Monday night, my grandmother, my dad's mom, actually stayed with us so that they could go out. I had religion class, my brother stayed home with my grandmother, my friend's mom brought me home, you know, it was a typical Monday night. I went to bed, my brother went to bed, and then, you know... My timeline is a little bit fuzzy, but it was definitely the middle of the night. I want to say it was a little before four o'clock in the morning. 
in my head, I only heard one gunshot, but there might have been two. But in my dream, like what woke me up was I heard a gunshot and then a thud. And then I laid in bed for a second. And the next thing I knew is I heard my mom yelling from the top of the stairs, Fran, Fran, Fran. And then she went running down the stairs. And then I heard my brother go running down the stairs. Then I just followed because I didn't know what was going on. And we all made it to the bottom of the stairs and we we turned to go into the kitchen and the kitchen light was on and the back door was open and the cellar door was open and my dad was on the kitchen floor. And at that point, I had no idea what was going on and there was no blood. There was nothing on the kitchen floor. So in my half hazy mind, I, I, I'm like, he fell down. He had a heart attack. Like, boy, I don't know what happened. So then my mom rushed over to the kitchen phone. She picked up the phone and she just says, the phone lines have been cut. And my brother, I'll never forget this. He, next to our cellar door was our dishwasher. And he like pulled what to me seemed like the biggest knife I'd ever seen out of like the butcher block. And my mom just goes, go next door, go next door. So my brother and I rush out of the front of our house. We are in a t-shirt and shorts. We're running down the road to my neighbor's house and... You know, he opens the door and we're like, we need to call 911. Something happened, da, 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 da. And he lets us in. We call 911. And then my brother leaves and goes back to the house. And now I like looking back on it, I'm like, how stupid were we to leave my mom alone in the house? So it's it's just a panic. It's just a Yeah, confusion. it's like flight or flight. You know, you have to do something to get help. And how long did it take for, you know, an ambulance and, and police and stuff to get there? It didn't take very long. We actually, our old house wasn't too far from a firehouse and paramedics. So, I mean, again, in my mind, it took 10 hours, but it probably took more like 10 minutes. And your father, did he die at home or did they make it to the hospital? The stories that I've been told is that he never regained consciousness. If he happened to be alive on the kitchen floor, which it does not seem like he was because he did eventually start to bleed from his neck, which is where he was shot. He never regained consciousness. So they originally took him to the hospital that was closest to our house. They ended up transporting him, I believe, to Yale in New Haven. And that's where he died. Or that's where he was officially like pronounced dead, I should say. So at this time, people at your house, police, EMTs, there's no sign of the person that shot him. It looks like they ran out the front door, I take it? Out the back door. The back door. Yeah. And we know from covering things like this, when somebody comes into your house and they cut the lines and they know somebody's home and they still come in, it's usually because they have something planned that's not very good, obviously. Did the police come to any conclusions right away about that or have any theories that you know of at the time? There were so many rumors that were flying around in those first couple of days after it happened. At the time, one of our neighbors was a cop in a neighboring town. So like one of the big rumors I remember hearing was they were actually supposed to go into. I say they because we don't know if it was one person or more people. But my brother and I over the years have kind of talked and we think it might be like more than one person because they came in through a basement window and the phone lines were cut and the cable lines were cut. And it just seems like it. And like they were able to get away with our VCR, I think our video camera. So we just think that in order to have all those items and also pull a gun and use it, it had to be more than one person like doing everything. So I use the word they, but it might not have been a they. 
So one of the rumors at the time was that the people who did this was actually supposed to get the house next door and they screwed up and they hit the wrong house. Now, how was your neighborhood at the time? Was there anything else, crimes or, or reports of crimes like this going on? So we lived on kind of a main road. It was like a double line road, but it was a lot of houses very close together. And I remember, so this had took place in December. And I remember back in like August, like summertime, my parents' cars had gotten broken into. And one of the things that I always thought was really weird was that, so they got broken into, it was like maybe like middle of end to August And then the night that my dad was killed, our cars got broken into again. And I always thought that was really weird that there was a break in in August and then kind of the same thing happened the night that he died. Like, how does your car get broken into twice within four months of each other? Over the years, you know, obviously they started an investigation. And then over the years, as time went by, how closely did the police stay in touch with your family and keep you guys up to date with what was going on with the investigation? So in the beginning, I wasn't too involved with what was going on with the police and them letting my mom know what was going on. Um, I know that they definitely brought her and my brother in and talked to them since they knew more about the night that it happened. And um, they definitely kept her updated on any kind of leads that they were having, like the few that they had or like, you know, they checked the pawn shops in the area to see if our stuff had been pawned. But, I mean, this case is 25 years old. So as time has gone on, people have retired, people have passed away. So my feeling is, you know, except for the one article that our local uh, online newspaper does every year, my mom really doesn't have contact with the police. They don't contact my brother or I. They'll throw out the reward, which I think might be $70,000 or $50,000 for any, you know, kind of information. But other than that, like, this case is beyond cold. It's it's sitting in a box probably somewhere and no one's looking at it. And to your knowledge, do you know if they have any good physical evidence, any DNA or anything like that? Uh, There's from- no DNA. No, <laughs> no, I was actually when I told my brother I'd be doing this, he and I were talking and he told me that in his memory, they don't even have a good print from anything um, from that evening. So beyond someone coming f- forward and saying, I know exactly who did this. I don't know how they would be able to solve it because there's little to no physical evidence. Is it correct that the police have somebody in mind as a suspect in this case? So they do. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what state he's in, but I'll just say it's down south. So I know that they were, they they being the the detectives from our police station, were able to go down to kind of like search him out once. I believe they asked to go down a second time and they were denied that request. And I think that's where it kind of just ended because this individual who has a family, which I think is, I just don't even understand. He is just living his life and he's got his kids and he's got his wife and he's got his job and he's just going about, going about his day like nothing happened. And what do you think it is, you know, if you consider what you can say anyways, that led them to this, this suspect? So it's my understanding that, A person was arrested by the Shelton police and during his booking, maybe he said, 
I want to talk about the guy on Howe Ave, and that's the street that we lived on when my dad passed away. So they were like, um, okay. And he, and I'm going to, ch- I think this is the correct sequence of event. He led them to somebody who was already in jail in Connecticut who led them to the guy down south. So within that circle, either someone's lying or someone's telling the truth. But I thought it was interesting that the the guy who initially kicked this off, the one that they had originally arrested, his dad had just passed away. And the way that the police conveyed it to us was that he felt a sense of guilt over knowing this information and having lost his father, knowing that we lost our father. So the police think that this could be the guy, but they just don't have enough to, to arrest him. They, uh, yeah, and they don't... I. I believe they may have even spoken to him at one point, and he just denied any kind of knowledge of what happened. And how frustrating is that for you and your family to know that that could be the guy, yet there's nothing there that is strong enough for them to arrest him? It's incredibly frustrating. It's for me, and I'm going to try to do this without crying, for me, knowing that he has a family and that he gets to see his kids every day and that he gets to be there for his kids growing up. Like, it's just, it's not fair. You know, my dad did everything he was supposed to do as a father and as a husband. And someone decided that night that he didn't get to do that anymore. So it's 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 frustrating knowing that he has to, you know, he'll get to see his kids grow up and graduate and get married and do all that. And my dad doesn't get to do any of those things. He doesn't get to see his, he has three granddaughters now that he'll never see and they'll never meet their grandfather. And it's just, it's not fair. Obviously these, this is very deep for you for, you know, it still hurts after all this time and, and to deal with, you know, what you just talked about with us. What do you do to, to cope? What does your family do to, to cope with it? Um, after all these years? Well, immediately after everything happened, my mom threw my brother and I into therapy. (laughs) Um, As to be expected, you know, we did group therapy, we did family therapy, we did kid therapy. So definitely trying to get us to talk about what we were, you know, feeling and how we were coping and stuff like that. And that went on for a couple years. Um, But it doesn't take away what happened. I you know, I live with PTSD every day. I'm literally afraid of the things that go bump in the night. You know, there's not that we have anger issues, but we have a very hard time dealing with situations where we're very frustrated. We don't really know how to work through communicating our emotions to people. So, I mean, every day, the the effects of what happened that night are with us, especially for me. Um, so after my dad died, we never went back to that house. We packed up, we moved, uh, we bought a different house in the same town and, you know, we got an alarm system put in and all of those things that you're supposed to do to feel safe. And I don't think I've slept through the night soundly in 25 years. I wake up in the middle of the night. I check on my kids. I check the alarm. I make sure the doors are locked. It's that rationally thinking. I don't think the person's going to come back and get the, you know, finish the job, quote unquote. But there's always that voice in the back of your head that says, this could happen to you in your house. 
so it sort of sort of planted a seed in in you when that happened that's stuck with you all this time oh absolutely and even you know after it happened sleeping at my friends houses i was very picky choosy about where i stayed because i don't feel safe when i go to sleep so for me to sleep at a friend's house it's very unnerving because not only am I not in my own house, I'm in somebody else's house, so I really don't feel safe. And and that's totally understandable. Um, I know just from looking, you know, I, I you had sent me some stuff and I looked online, and I know there were some articles, uh, you know, about your father over the years at, at different points. Um, was did his case get any attention on local TV uh, or on any podcast or anything like that? Uh, well, never a podcast, but um, you know, again, every couple of every couple of years, the local stations will do, um, you know, a five minute bit at Christmas time about the case. Um, I'm trying to think what year it was, but they did at some point. So we lived across the street from a park, which also bumped up against a river. And at some point, and I don't remember exactly which year it was, they actually um, kind of looked at an area of the river because they had gotten a tip that the gun that was used was thrown into the river. It ended up not being the right gun, um, but that kind of like, you know, kicked up some attention to it and I remember it was incredibly frustrating they one of the local news stations did a piece where they found somebody who lived on our street and said so this person who didn't want to be filmed from the neck up so it was only the neck down um, said that she had heard screaming and gunshots the night that it happened and I was like what? Because you're using screaming and there was, as all of us remember, there was no screaming. And I don't think that there was a plural of gunshots. But also this person that claimed to have heard all this did not live on either side of us. It was December and everyone's windows were closed. And I was like, how are you to even say that that's what you heard? Like you're flat out lying. Like you're putting lies out there. And that was, oh, I was mad that day. (laughs) And the last thing you want is bad information yeah. getting out there. It's, so you're wrestling between getting information out there, but not getting bad information out there. Yeah, like yeah. Well, uh, I'm very happy, you know, to help you in whatever way we can to spread the word about the case on this podcast. Um, because even though your father's case is a smaller case than a lot of the cases we hear about on podcasts, um, it doesn't mean that you don't want it solved any less than any other you know person wants a case solved even the bigger ones because uh, this is important to your family obviously do you have any websites or social media pages set up uh, about your father's case so we don't because there really isn't a lot of information that we can give um, and with there being little to no physical evidence and with there not being really a pattern of crime in the area there really isn't anything for us to offer the public that they can like research for us or to look up so i mean unfortunately we're at the mercy of the police department and any work that they do with it well they and you did say though that there is a reward out there maybe somebody will come forward with some information if a listener hears this and and happens to know something about your father's case or may have heard something um who should they contact to share their information 
So they can call the Shelton Police Department. I don't know exactly who that they should ask for at this point because I'm not quite sure who's investigating the case. But um, the phone number for the Shelton Police Department is 203-924-1544. I'll definitely put some information out there when we do some social media stuff and and we'll share it that way too. And, And who knows, maybe somebody out there, you know, we can hope because we see cases that seemed unsolvable getting solved every day. So let's hope that your father's case could be one of those. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderofmyfamily. In every new episode, I'll give shout-outs to each new supporter. For this episode, I'd like to thank Cora Kahana, Tracy Benedictson-Holtum, and David Paulson. I'd also like to thank Maria Fojo, who chose to support the show through a PayPal donation, which you can also do by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder in my family. Thank you all for your generous support. As we wrap up this episode... Be sure to check out two true crime podcasts that I highly recommend. Canadian True Crime, hosted by Christy, and Impact Statement, hosted by Charlie. And until next time, remember, every murder victim means something to somebody. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. Canada may be known as the friendliest country in the world, but make no mistake, it has some of the most shocking criminal cases too. My name is Christy and I host Canadian True Crime. I'm Australian, but I've been living in Canada for many years. Canadian True Crime takes a deep dive into some of Canada's most well-known cases, like the Ken and Barbie killers, Robert Picton, the pig farmer, and many smaller cases you probably haven't heard of but are just as fascinating. If you're looking for the facts of the case told in a narrative storytelling format with ambient music, you can find me on your favourite podcast app or social media just by searching for Canadian True Crime. In court cases that end in a conviction, victims and their families are often allowed to make an impact statement a statement of record of what they had before the crime and what they were left with after. But for unsolved crimes, crimes that don't end in a conviction, or serious life-altering events that aren't crimes at all, there is nowhere for the victims or their families to speak. Impact Statement is a new podcast that talks to victims and their families about life before, during, and after a life-changing event. Impact Statement combines compelling narration with interview clips to give a clear retelling while allowing those who have been affected the most to speak. Impact Statement can be found in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.